0: As I said last time, uh, my job is basically, as I see it, is to help the session prepare the church for the next pastor, the next ministry. We are not uh, sitting still. We are not spinning our wheels. We are moving forward. Uh, But I am not the next pastor. Uh, He is to come a little bit. So I want to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians 13, including the phrase, a sentence from the previous chapter, not sure why that's not in chapter 13, but don't worry about chapter breaks. Sometimes they're in an inconvenient place. But let me read, beginning at the end of chapter 12. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Next week, doing a uh, little mini two-part series on this chapter, though I don't really plan to get beyond uh, verse 3. Lord willing, we'll see. So, two weeks and three verses. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, Your Word is our food. It is our meat. Lord, Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is our our treasure, O God. It is in our heart. Put it in our heart, each one of us, O God, that it would abide, that we we would not sin against You. Transform us by Your truth, O Holy Spirit. Make us more like Jesus. We confess that we are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. Too often, O God, we, we do what's wrong or fail to do what's right. We don't keep Your commands. Forgive us of our sins and open our eyes to your glory. We are no longer slaves of sin, but we are free people in Christ. Free to love our God with all our heart and strength and free to love our neighbor as ourselves. Oh Lord, it is no small thing to take up our cross daily and to deny ourselves and to pursue Christ. And yet, that is our calling. Lord, to put the flesh to death, to put the old man to death, to put self to death, and to pursue love. Help us. Teach us. Oh, Spirit, transform us. We can't do this without you. This is not a work of ours, but a work of God. Make us more like Jesus, our elder brother and our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, anyone else enjoy that wonderful preview of spring a few days ago? That was glorious. And what's perhaps even better is that it's a hint, a little hint that spring is coming. We're going to get out of this nasty stuff. No, every day is great, right? But we're about to break out of winter and come into spring. But unfortunately, at least for someone like me, that means that the scorching hot, humid weather that Atlanta is famous for, or perhaps infamous for, will be here too. We'll be here soon as well. But something else comes every summer, and that is weddings. Okay? We know that summer is the season for weddings. Anyone get married during the summertime? Many of us, I'm sure, did. I don't know if it's the the colorful flowers or the green trees or the bright sunshine or the warm air. But the summer months are full of life and activities. We like to take our vacations in. We like to get outside and get involved with things. And, and perhaps the, the, the summer warmness and the sun inspires some romantic hope that the new couple will live happily ever after. And so with, with hearts longing for that, many couples have this very chapter read at their Wedding, Because every couple, all the time, but especially on a wedding day, wants that love that never ends. And that's good. That's a good thing, of course, because God has made us for loving relationships. And every one of our hearts and every heart and every human being who's ever lived, I believe there's that, there's that longing, that deep longing for love. We are made for relationships with God. And on the horizontal with one another as well. And, you know, even in the very beginning, when there were no flaws or imperfections in the perfect garden God created, when everything about the man was good, even very good, even then there was something that wasn't quite good. Something that was incomplete, something that needed another supernatural act of creation. And that thing that wasn't good was the man's aloneness, right? It's not good. After, after, after calling everything good and even very good, suddenly in chapter 2, oh, it's not good that the man should be alone. Not one of all the animals that God had made and that Adam had named were adequate. To give the man the intimate companionship he needed. No, not even that cute dog. Not even him or her. No one also could participate in the kingdom mission that God gave to Adam. So God created once again. This time he created a woman from one of Adam's ribs, as you know the story so well. And named her Eve. And she was the perfect complement to Adam. They enjoyed this wonderful one flesh unity. And they quickly, maybe on the first day, fell in love, right? And on their wedding day, God stood up and He read First Corinthians 13 to them. I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe. Who knows? But you know, there are not many chapters in the Bible, at least in our modern days, that are popular even among those that don't have any particular love for God or any particular affection for His word, but this chapter, I believe, is the one notable exception. Perhaps because it touches upon this this deep longing with our image bearing hearts. Or even as the Beatles sang, all you need is love, right? All you need is love. And so, perhaps this chapter inspires hope. Perhaps it's viewed as almost magical. You know, this, this poetic ballad of love. Perhaps the magic will happen in my marriage. Perhaps I will have this lifetime of love, right? Many perhaps even assume that the love they have is that lifetime of love. What is so ironic, at least in my mind, is as popular as this chapter is, and as frequently as it's read and known by many people, many people miss the most excellent way. Someone once came to me and said, I'm about to become a statistic. You know what that means. I'm about to be divorced. And we know, or at least we're told statistically, that about what about half of all marriages end in divorce. That's not half of all first marriages, by the way. But about half of all marriages end in divorce. Okay? And so that means that in 50% of marriages, the couple fails to realize the dream they once had of this enduring love of living happily ever after. Remember, they stood before the minister or some official, and they pledged that love till death do us part. But things came up, life happened, and suddenly they're before a judge or somewhere getting a divorce. But that statistic about half marriages end in divorce, well, that means that half of marriages don't end in divorce, right? That's how it works. That's good news, right? Don't you think? But how many of these 50% of marriages could be described as having this most excellent way that Paul describes? How many of those who stay together still actually fail to experience the loving intimacy of a deep and enduring marital union where they share complete trust and commitment and I say this not to pick on anyone some of you might have been divorced but my point is that as much as we talk about love and watch movies about love and read books about love and and listen to songs about love it's everywhere it's pervasive and yet when it comes down to it we really know very little about love Not the way Paul describes it that we just read. And I'm not talking about marital love solely. Any kind of relationship. Siblings, parent-child, friends in the church, and so on and so forth. We often don't experience this rich, unconditional, enduring love that Paul describes. Now, I hope it's clear to you that 1 Corinthians 13 is actually not about romantic love. It's actually not about the love, particularly between a man and a woman. And Paul didn't write this as some sort of independent essay on love generally, okay? It's written in a letter. It's part of a letter. It has a context, okay? It's part of Paul's apostolic exhortation for these Corinthians to pursue the more excellent way as the correction to their many faults and issues. The church in Corinth, as you probably are aware of, Was a mess. They had more problems than we can imagine. So many issues, and 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 so much of these two letters that Paul wrote to the church were addressing these issues. But do you know that Paul didn't just write two letters to the Corinthians? He wrote at least two other letters to the Corinthians. Meaning, he yes, he he read he wrote. At least four letters to the Corinthians. You would know that if you took my Bible survey course, right, Cliff? Last a year ago. See, he was there. He knows that. If you don't, what can I do about it? Well, now you know it now. Okay. There was the uh, the so-called lost letter that Paul wrote that's mentioned in First Corinthians five nine, and the so-called sorrowful letter. The first one was sent by Timothy. The sorrowful letter was sent by Titus, and that's mentioned in Second Corinthians chapter seven as well as chapter 2. So Paul wrote at least four letters and possibly five I won't get into that to the Corinthians. He also made three visits to Corinth in about 6 years approximately, okay? So the church was full of problems and Paul was always addressing these issues. In fact, the two letters we have comprise 29 chapters. Most of these, most of them deal with issues like divisions, and jealousies, and selfish ambitions, and boasting, and self-exaltation, and Paul, looking at these issues, confronted them, and he wrote, and now I will show you a still more excellent way. They thought they had the excellent way. They thought the way was speaking in tongues, and prophesying, and whatnot. It's Paul saying, no, I will show you The more excellent way, the way of love. The question for us is, do we even know what love is? Do we really even know what love is? Oh, yes, we know all about romance. Oh, yes, we know all about physical attraction and intimacy. But do we know this Christ-imitating love that Paul describes? Let me read again. Love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I think there's at least a couple of problems in our days that hinder our ability to, to love and to be loved, and the first one, can I call it the lie of Hallmark movie love? I love to pick on Hallmark movies. My love, my wife loves Hallmark movies, and I'll watch them with occasionally with her. Okay, A little full disclosure here. But this, you know, romantic love—it's not just Hallmark books. TV shows, you know, movies on and on and on, we're assaulted with this lie, right? It's pervasive today in our media everywhere culture. In fact, I'm really concerned about even the young people in our church are more influenced by those philosophies or those presentations out there in movies, in books, in TV shows in this media assaulted culture we live in than they are by their parents. Or even by scriptures. It's a dangerous thing. Okay? I know it looks good on screen, right? You watch these films or you read the book. Like, you know, kids grew up with what? Cinderella. And the girls think, Oh, someday my prince is going to come. Or maybe my princess is going to come. He's going to sweep me off my feet and we're just going to live happily ever after. But have you ever noticed that the happy ending celebrated in modern films and TV shows or films in particular and in the uh, ubiquitous Hallmark movie is not actually a long, successful, enduring marriage that makes its way through all kinds of challenges and trials and challenges and changes that life brings. It just, it's just the happy ending is two people that found each other. And declared their love for each other. Big deal. Really? That's not that hard. Okay? The question is, will they stay together? Will they have this enduring love? Will the desire of a happy ending really be a part of their lives? Here's a dirty little secret. Okay? What passes for love these days, at least romantic love, is often more the love of self. The love of myself than the love of another. It's the pursuit about my needs more than it's the pursuit of the others' needs, like well, like David pursuing Bathsheba. Ah oh, he saw her Woohoo He had to have her. He was he needed her so much. He was willing to he's willing to, to to kill for her. John Meether, who you probably don't know, OPC minister and teacher, professor of a seminary somewhere, he wrote regarding this. He said, The beloved is not a person to be loved, but an object to be conquered or possessed, perhaps. And once that person is possessed or conquered, right, the desire for him or her wanes over the coming over the next years because, well, nothing left to pursue, right? Say so they move on to an affair, some next thrill, some next fling that blings, brings excitement. Or think about Annon's love for Tamar. Okay? Not quite the same thing, perhaps, but uh, he had to have her so much, he, he raped her. And after he raped her, we read this, Then Annon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. What? I mean, how do you go from love to hatred in 60 seconds flat? Well, because it's self-love. It's not self-denying love. Did Amnon love Tamar, or did Amnon love himself? Okay, was Amnon pursuing Tamar? Was David pursuing Bathsheba? Or were they pursuing themselves? Okay? It's not love, it's, uh, it's self love. And these days, especially in our era, you know, I, I could, as some of you are older than I am, but you know, I grew up in a, a Roman Catholic culture in upstate New York. And do you know, and, and the kids will be shocked perhaps, I'm not sure what your experience is, but the very first friend. I had, the very first person I knew from a broken home, from a divorced home, was when I was 19 years old. Unheard of anymore, right? And relational breakups are, and divorce are so commonplace these days that I think probably most kids think it's just a part of the normal cycle of marriage, right? It just happens. Love ends, right? X has become a normal part of our vocabulary ex-wife, ex-husband, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-fiancé, ex-church, ex-everything. Okay? Paul disagrees. Paul says, love never fails. Couple seeking a divorce go off to the counselor, if they go to a counselor, and they often bring the trump card with them. The trump card is Pastor... Or whoever, counselor, we just don't love each other anymore. Okay. Well, I guess that's it, right? I mean, you know, you can't stay married, right? If you don't love each other, of course, right? Of course. Well, the biblical counsel at that very same point leaves the couple to repentance and obedience. Because when they say, we don't love each other anymore, What are they doing? They're confessing their sin. They're confessing their disobedience to Scripture. Okay, They are not, in fact, doing what God commands them to do. Because God says, Husbands, love your wife. Period. It says, Wife, respect your husband. Period. Right? God does not command feelings. He commands actions. If your love fails... It means you have failed to love. Is just that simple. Because love is actions. Love is the selfless giving one gives to the other to benefit the other. If love fulfills the law, which it does because Scripture says so, then love is the things that we do. Because the law describes the way we are to live. Okay? Many years ago, I knew a man, as a Reformed Baptist preacher named Al Martin. Anyone ever hear of Al Martin? Boy, he was a fabulous... I don't think he's still alive anymore, I don't know, but he was a fabulous preacher. And he uh, gave this definition to one of his sermons. I heard this probably, what, Barbara, 30 years ago? 35 years ago? I wrote it down and kept it all ever since because it's so good. This is a definition of love. Love is that intelligent and purposeful affection with which delight with which with delight wills and seeks the good of its object even at great personal cost. Let me repeat that. Love is that intelligent and purposeful affection which with delight wills and seeks the good of its object even at great personal cost. So notice the focus there is not what someone receives, but someone Gives, okay. The lover seeks the good of the beloved, even if it costs me greatly. But see, if your love for someone doesn't cost you personally in some fairly significant way, it's probably not love that you have. Think of what love for you costs Jesus. Think about that. For the joy that was set before Him, for the joy of loving you and loving me and loving the entire church, for the joy of love, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame to affect love for us. So love is primarily what you do for someone, not what you feel for someone. You're going to have feelings. But it's primarily what you give to the other. The media, I hope this is not a newsflash to anyone, but the media lies to you. They lie to us, okay? You think, if only I could have what Cinderella had, then I'd live happily ever after. Let me tell you a secret. Cinderella didn't live happily ever after. What? You didn't see the sequel? Cinderella 2, Found the expensive honeymoon. This is in the sequel. I think I only I watched it. Found the expensive honeymoon. They come home and the prince begins to work long hours. After all, running a kingdom takes a lot of time and a lot of work. So he's working long hours and Cinderella's distraught because when he finally come, comes home from work, he's tired. He doesn't want to talk. He yells at the kids. He complains that dinner is cold and overdone. And Cinderella yells back, Well, the kids were hungry. We couldn't wait for you. If you'd gotten home on time. And she throws the apple pie at his face. And he just picks up. Doesn't even look at the mess and just walks over to the TV. Turns it on and starts watching some football game or something. Right? And soon they get a divorce. See, what the scriptwriters write is pure fiction. Okay? What's wrong with our failed relationship is simply a failure to love. Okay? I mentioned two problems. The second one is really an internal problem. It's a heart problem. Okay? We are self-centered by nature. We don't love others by nature. Some, someone said we have this tenacious orientation to self. Maybe that's only true of me and not of you, but I think it's true of all of us. We have this tenacious orientation to self. And that's why, Karen Carpenter, all you get from love is a love song. She wondered why. See, by nature we are not loving because our most fundamental commitment is to ourselves, to my needs and my desires. And when someone fails to please me, I'm out of here. I walk away in anger, in bitterness, with fighting and accusations. Think about Adam. It's an amazing thing. Adam met Eve, okay? And he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He was in love with this creature that God had made. Not much long later, not much, did I say that right? Not much later. He said, that woman, God, that woman that you gave me, What a change? See, a heart whose chief allegiance is to oneself cannot truly love because love requires making the other person's needs your primary desire and purpose. This is the reason that sin has produced division from the very beginning. I mean, just mentioned Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Jacob and Esau, David and Saul, Israel and Judah, and countless churches and families and couples down through the ages. So, is there no hope? Do we despair of ever knowing love? Is the only reward of love writing a broken heart love song? Oh, and you, you get to call someone an ex as well, I guess. I don't have an ex. So maybe I'm missing that. I don't know. No. The answer is no. Because God so loved the world. And because He did, we can know love. And secondly, because God has sent His Holy Spirit to dwell within His people. And because the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart in regeneration, we can actually love as we have been loved in the sermon, I've really been using marriage as a metaphor. Paul's concern is with the church. And so our concern this morning is with the church, that we experience this love in our church. But understand what Paul is talking about is not natural. It's not the same thing as the love between neighbors or, or friends or something like that. Okay. This is a supernatural work of God. It's the fruit of the indwelling Spirit. It's the commitment that is in the heart of the believer to reflect Christ's love and Christ's commitment toward the church, meaning it imitates Christ's self-sacrificing love who said, I didn't come to be served. The Son of God, the glorious infinite, eternal Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords said, I didn't come for you to serve Me. I came to serve you and to lay down My life that you might live. Because while sin produces strife and divisions, the Holy Spirit produces love and peace, and reconciliation. Consider Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, With its passions and desires. See, love and unity are crucial to what God is doing in the world through the gospel. What is that? God is taking a diverse people from every nation, people with natural divisions like race and language and culture, and so forth. And he's bringing them all together into one body in Christ. And Paul, in Ephesians 4, let me read this. Picking up at verse 22. No, picking up at verse 14. I can't find what I wrote it down here. Ephesians two, verse fourteen. Okay, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might make in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of his household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus be himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a holy, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, that must be a place of peace and love. And so because of what God is doing redemptively in making a diverse people one body, He exhorts the Ephesians when He gets to that part of His epistle in verse chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The call to love. Okay, He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body. What word do you hear a lot here? There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through us all and in all. Okay? That calling is to live together in peace and love that produces unity. And so what the Spirit is doing is bringing people together in one body, people who would otherwise be very divided. And God is then fulfilling prophecies like Isaiah 11, where He writes, the prophet said, "...the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat." and the calf and lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. Meaning, natural enemies, natural people that are naturally opposed to one another, are brought together in a loving unity and in a peace that they have in the gospel. See, we are the body of Christ, the one body of Christ which has a diversity of members, right? We know that. Paul said, God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, as in our physical bodies that are intended to work all in harmony, function together, one part helping the other. How would it be if suddenly your hand just reached up and smacked yourself, smacked your head, you know, smacked yourself in the face? Or if your foot just suddenly just reared up and, you know, kicked your knee? It would be a little strange, would it not? Okay? We are called to love one another in the church in a way that reflects Christ's love for the church. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as Jesus has loved you. See, because He loved you, you must love Jesus. Others. I didn't say you can. I said you must. You must essentially reenact the the drama of Christ's self-sacrifice for others. He Himself said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone does what? Lays down His life for His friends. And of course, Jesus may well have been speaking about His own Self-sacrifice for love for the church. But Paul said, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, love is essential. If we are to be a faithful church, If we are to be faithfully witnessing of the gospel and of Christ, love is essential. In John 13, just after saying, love one another just as I have loved you, uh, John wrote, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Did you hear that? People will know you're a believer under one condition if you have love for one another. A church can have no gospel witness unless there's love for one another. Because how do you witness about the God who is love unless you love? And how do you tell others about the reconciliation you can experience or they can experience in the Gospel if we don't know reconciliation and unity? Okay? Do you want to know God's love? Do you want to live in God's love? I know you must or you won't be here. If you do, then you must love one another. Okay? Okay? Look at 1 John 4. John does not mince words here. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Wait a minute. Did you hear that? If we love one another, if conditional statement, English majors, if we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. If we love one another. So what does that say if we don't love one another? That's a little scary, isn't it? If we don't love one another, deacons, when we leave, just lock the building up, shut it down, and sell it because we're wasting our time. We're just going through the motions like the people in Hosea's day. Right? Just going through the motions when they didn't love. They didn't love God. They didn't love one another. See, God is a holy architect who is building a city. A city comprised of people from every background and language and culture. A people who are naturally divided but who are brought together as one body in Christ. It's incredible. It's incredible. People are divided by so many things. Not to mention their own natural self-interest, right? And yet they're brought together in peace and harmony to form one temple, which is the dwelling place of God on earth. We see that in the early church. It's described by Luke in Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and of prayers. And all who, all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's not communism. That's sharing. That's unity. That's loving each other. Okay? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to any had need. And day after day. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Okay? And Acts 2 ends this way. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. So here's this early infant church dwelling together in peace and unity, in love, okay, with the Holy Spirit And what happened as a result of their loving unity? They turned the world upside down. Have you ever thought about the connection between church growth and unity? The loving unity they had, that early church, was so remarkable that Christ was made known and the church grew. It was remarkable because it was supernatural. It displayed the power of God among them. God was known because they could see it in these people being naturally divided. We're now together in love. See, if we want to be a faithful church, and I trust we do, it can only happen through unity and love. How can we display God's love if we don't love others? I started reading a book this week by Francis Chan, and he said this, We have experienced the greatest love in the universe. Agree? Shouldn't that profound love flow out of us? And shouldn't that be enough to shock the world? See, the supernatural love among them proved that God was among them. And sadly, churches that are divided only give more, only give the world more fodder to mock Christ in the Gospel. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, Love is true humanity. It's the redemptive work of God in the Gospel. There's simply no other way to know Christ or to make Him known. His way. Christ is the most excellent way. Right? Loving in His love is how we display His excellence. Maybe you have great knowledge. Maybe you have great gifts. Paul will say, if you have not love, it's nothing. It's nothing. Each one of us, me, you, each one of us must humble ourselves and set aside our selfish interests to pursue unity through love for the fame and glory of Christ and the desire to show him to the world. Will you? Will we as a body? Because this is not about us. It's all about Christ. It's all about His kingdom. It's all about His glory and fame. Let us make Christ famous. Let us display His glory. Amen. Oh Lord God, we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and grace. And truth. We know that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He pursued love even unto his own death that we might live forever with him. We are amazed. We are blown away by such love. And should we not show that love to others? Oh God, put that love in our hearts. We have your Holy Spirit, sanctify us. Make us more like Jesus. Forgive us of our sins. Let us turn away from anger and bitterness and resentment and revenge and all these things. Let us dwell with one another in unity that you, O God, might be famous and that your gospel would go to the ends of the earth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.